Well, good morning. My name is Jenny Saviston, and I am so honored to be here this morning. When I moved from Arizona to Oklahoma a little over eight years ago, I remember walking through those doors with my little 18-month-old on my hip, dropping him off in the nursery, and then looking around this place thinking, where am I supposed to go? There's a lot of doors and a lot of hallways. And as I made my way through the atrium and saw this table, all these tables set in here, I knew I had to find my table leader. Um, And I struck gold when I sat down right next to Terry Hubbard. And those girls became my Oklahoma family that I didn't have. I remember uh, just finding out right before that, that we were expecting baby number two, and I had no friends. We knew nobody. And so this was what I was hoping to be a lifeline, and it very much became that. So you guys around that table and the tables you're at, you know that the community that you make here is life-changing. And it was quickly around that table that I learned that. And now I'm currently serving on staff here as the Associate Kids Director for our Oklahoma City campus. And it is a joy each and every week to be able to serve the families that walk through the doors and the different kiddos that come across our paths every day. Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever gone through all the trouble of making a meal in hopes to really wow the people at your table? You think about what each person would like and how you can serve it and what you're going to do for them. Well, this is uh, what I was trying to do with my family one particular time. And I was really trying to pull out all the stops, really trying to just make it a special meal, knowing that the time we were gonna spend around it, we could share our highs and our lows. Everyone would get along maybe. And we were just, just ready for a meal. I was feeling really proud of myself as the red and yellow boxes hit the table. You mamas know this is the McDonald's Happy Meal, right? Really pulling out all the stops for the kids. Well, as my first little boy, he's eight years old, he opens up that yellow cheeseburger wrapper and he looks inside it. You know the first thing he does, he opens it right up and would you know it, there are onions and pickles on that burger. Is he gonna eat that burger anymore? Not a chance, he's not eating that burger. So I'm already like, okay, we gotta think of something else for this one. Move down the table to my son number two, he's six. And I put the cheeseburger down in front of him and he just starts to cry. And I was like, it's McDonald's. We don't cry at McDonald's, this is is happy. And he just looks at me with the little tears and he's like, but I wanted chicken nuggets. But he wanted a cheeseburger last time we were there, so I'm not really sure. And before I can even get to my son number three, who is four years old, there is chocolate milk spilled all over the table. There is no unlidded beverage that that child will not spill. So much so he has earned the name Spills McGill's in our family. (laughs) Everything, everything. Last night there was already something. So we've got this scene and I've husband over here and he's trying to sop up the chocolate milk and the dog is now jumping on the table trying to get the onion burger. Mr. I want McNuggets is crying over here and he's just staring at the chocolate milk like it's the first time it's ever happened. And all the while, mama just wants some hot French fries. Is that too much to ask? Now we all know we just start eating them on the way home. You just don't even wait till you get there because it's not going to happen. We can all relate to life around a table. In fact, you're doing it right now. You're sitting at tables full of people that you trust, people that you share life with. You look around your table, you know who your centerpiece queens are. You know the ones that are gonna come with like the matching things and that might be totally you. Me, I'm just like paper plates, maybe the right color of the occasion, hopefully when it comes to like a baby shower. 
But regardless, our tables are reserved for special moments with special people, the people that we love the most, the people that we live life with, the ones we surround ourselves with. Well, our story today takes place around a different table. In fact, much of Jesus's teaching took place around a table. If you think about it, even his first miracle with the wedding at Cana, there was a table. When he was calling his disciples to follow him and he calls Matthew, a tax collector, he invites him to his house for a meal. Zacchaeus, we could, there are stories on stories on the, in the Bible about Jesus meeting at a table. And it's interesting because he takes what is the etiquette of the time and the social construction and he just deconstructs it. And he uses the time around the tables to encourage, to engage, and to teach the people that are closest to him. And I don't think that it's a coincidence today that the passage of scripture that we're gonna be looking at is was chosen before I realized that it was Holy Week that I was speaking. So as we prepare our hearts and our minds as we lead up to Easter, it's appropriate that the text we will be reading from today is John chapter 14. There's an image that you're gonna see up here. And this is an image of the upper room where the table that we find ourselves peering into is right outside the city gates of Jerusalem. And I don't know about you, but when I think of the upper room, I imagine the like picture of a really dark, tiny room with all the disciples like squeezed in right among each other. And so I did a little bit of looking and this is the historical site. This is probably not the exact place in which it would have happened. Uh, or the exact look of it, but it was right outside. If you were to visit, this is what you would see. And it kind of gives us a different picture of what it would look at. And it's interesting to note that in the book of John, John's the author, he dedicates a quarter of the scriptures, quarter of his gospel into this section of teaching. It's the longest section of red letters in the Bible. And we know that the red letters are Jesus's words. So clearly the time spent around this table was a conversation that was invaluable. So try to imagine with me, the disciples are all seated and these are all of his closest followers, the ones that he has lived life with, walked alongside with, performed miracles with, he's wept with, he's had times of joy and celebration with. These are his people. And it is in this upper room around this table, surrounded by these individuals that Jesus shares his final words. We pick up in John chapter 14. The meal is likely over. The feet have been washed. The betrayal of both Judas and Peter predicted. And Jesus knows that time is running out. I imagine the conversations are starting to get a little tense. It's getting intensified. They're picking up on these things. The questions, they start flying. Thomas asks, where are you going? We don't even know where you're going. How are we gonna know how to get there? Peter says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Have you ever been in a conversation like this? There's a little bit of uneasiness. Around our tables, it might look like a snarky comment or someone getting up in tears or someone crying, leaving abruptly. I feel so bad for my parents. I, imagine, I remember a time my youngest brother had gotten married but didn't tell anybody. Um, but he did tell the siblings. So all the siblings knew that he was married, but our parents didn't. And so that was a really fun conversation around the, uh, around the table. <laughs> and my assumption is that the disciples were feeling anything but peace. In fact, I would imagine they were probably pretty confused and pretty fearful. 
And it would have been one thing for Jesus to leave them in their wondering and in their fears, but he so graciously answers their questions and offers them some of the most profound words the night before his death. Have you ever sat with someone as they shared their final words? These are the words that you cling to, you cherish, you try to live by, you remember them. And so his last words in the face of what looked like trouble and the end were peace. Now, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church and I was in youth ministry for a really long time before I did kids ministry. So is it even a sermon if there's not an acrostic? Probably not. So we're gonna look at peace today, looking through P-E-A-C-E. And so if you're taking notes with us, there's a little place in your book, you can go ahead and just write those down, just write down the line of your page. And the very first one is gonna be P, which is to pause in his presence. I'll give you a second to write that down. And if you're following along, we're gonna continue in John chapter 14. Remember that these are Jesus's words. John chapter 14, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. This is the first introduction of the Holy Spirit that Jesus gave to his disciples. He promises them an advocate a helper, a counselor. The Holy Spirit is the very presence of God within us as believers. And I wonder, do we take the time to pause in his presence? Pausing is recognizing the spirit moving in and through us, not by our own power, but by his power, his resurrection power. I've been a Christ follower for most of my life. And if I'm honest, I'm really good at trying to do things on my own. And I can be guilty of just having to be good enough to try hard enough to read the Bible plan, to keep my streak going. We do anything we can to check off these lists of time spent with him. But when we're not actually spending time to pause in his presence, we are missing out which is why I love this series that we're in, this life on the vine. Without a connection and a dependence to Jesus, we will not produce any fruit. There is absolutely no peace when we are disconnected from the vine. It is impossible. So if we want to learn to pause in his presence, we are going to have to realize and recognize the work of the Holy Spirit around us. Dallas Willard helps us understand it this way. Peace is not the absence of conflict. It's shalom or fullness of life. Peace is a rest of will that comes from divine assurance about how things will turn out. And if you're anything like me, that's kind of a lot of words. So let me help break that down for you. When Willard says a rest of will, it's a pause. It's a deep breath. It's a recognition that we don't know better than God. It's the ability to let go of our desires for what we want for our life and to embrace what the Father allows. Peace is willing to say that regardless of the outcome, regardless of what I want to have happen, that we will trust in the plans that he has for us. This is a hard one. This is a really hard one because we think we know what's best. We think we know what's best for our lives. We try to control the things that we think we can control. 
And it seems really overwhelming to take a step back and to think about not having that happen for us. I think about Katie who shared last week, how do you have peace when the story that you're writing is different than what God has planned out? Planned out? How do you have peace when the diagnosis is life-changing, not at all in your plans? How do you have peace when you're newly married and you get a phone call from both sets of parents within three months of each other that they're getting divorced after almost 20 years of marriage? It's in the abiding, the remaining, being so dependent on Jesus that you cannot help but trust in anything but his character. It's the resting of our own desires. Okay, we're gonna move on to number or letter E, which is going to be establish truth. Establish truth. And we'll continue reading together, Jesus saying these words to his disciples. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. It says, peace I leave with you, my peace. Jesus is making a compare and contrast statement here. He recognizes that the peace that the world offers goes way, the peace that he offers goes beyond what the world offers. And we have to establish truth. Who are we listening to? What voices are we listening to? What the world says about peace or what Jesus tells us peace is? Now, when the disciples would have heard him say, Jesus, heard Jesus say, my peace, they would have understood the word shalom, which means completeness or fullness, wholeness. And what we know right now that the disciples didn't know in that moment is that Jesus is literally the definition of peace that in his death, in his blood poured out for us, that he made us right with God. He took a broken relationship and restored it. It's why the apostle Paul in Ephesians two says that Jesus himself is our peace. On the other hand, the world's definition of peace is just absence of conflict. It's temporary and it's based on feelings. It's how we feel when things are calm, when things are in our control, when we feel like we have a grasp. And when we're relying on the world to provide our peace, we find, time, we find that we do a lot of things that are temporary. I'm sure we could go around the room and you could all share what it is that you do to identify peace in your life. Maybe booking a massage, reading a book, planning a vacation to the beach. Did you know some people don't like going to the beach? I just learned that, like that is peace to me taking a long bubble bath, or even something as simple, and I know this section all will get this, strolling this, the aisles of Target, you got your Starbucks in hand, your baby's dropped off at MDO, that is, that is peace. And that is what we think is peace. And these things in and of themselves, they're not bad. In fact, they're things that we do a lot of the time to relax and refocus, but if they become the source of our peace, that's when we have a problem. When we try to manufacture peace on our own outside of Christ, we will come up short every time. Because you know what happens? The hour long massage, it's over and you go back to life. It rains your whole vacation. You don't like the end of the book. You spend way too much money at Target. Now you're just stressed about your finances. These things are temporary, they're temporary, but man, we are so good at believing the lies. If we go back to the metaphor about the branches, the world's way tells us if we just maintain peace, if we can just do these things, if we can just 
In fact, I Googled it. Google will tell you what peace is. That's how you want to find out what peace is, right? Through the World Wide Web. It'll say you can just put on a little, take a little walk over here and practice contentment over here. Um, we can meditate, spend time in nature, declutter, be grateful, love ourselves. And so we start putting these things on our branches and we, before you know it, we're feeling so weighed down by all of these things that we're trying to do to produce peace in our lives but we've neglected the most important thing. We know that the only way fruit is produced is because of the nourishment in the soil, the connection to the vine. So while the world is telling us all of these things that we have to do to experience peace, Jesus is telling us simply to remain in him, to let him be the one that produces the fruit. We are so tempted to believe the lies that we have to do and feel and have this feeling over us, but really it's a pretty freeing thought to know that we just need to abide in who Jesus is and our connection with him. I truly believe that we have a desire to have peace with God and yet we seek peace horizontally with what the world offers. If it's time that we stop believing the lies that the world has and begin walking in what the spirit says. There's a difference between the things that we desire, which is hopefully things from God, and the ways that we seek peace in the world. And C.S. Lewis says it this way. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. We are not made for this world. Ultimately, this world will not satisfy. Our hearts will always long for something more. We cannot allow the world to define our peace. All right, and we're gonna move on to A, the second part of the verse um, we're gonna read here, but A is gonna be acknowledge fear. Acknowledge fear. Jesus continues to talk to his disciples and he says at the second part of verse 27, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Jesus says these words to his disciples, knowing that there are a series of traumatic events that, he is, that are about to come up for the 12. Within the next few hours, the same group that he's sitting around the table with, they will walk to the garden where one of their own will, will betray Jesus. Jesus will be arrested and taken away. Peter will disown him in fear of association with him. And they would watch from a distance as their closest friend is beaten and led to the cross. Do you realize that Jesus is about to walk through one of the hardest parts of his earthly life? He's about to endure the unthinkable, and yet here he is offering comfort to his disciples. It's just so opposite of how we handle things. He offers them his peace, knowing full well what he is about to do. So when we are afraid, we can remember that Jesus offers us his peace in our fear. It reminds me of a situation I found myself in a couple of years ago. But before I do, I need to tell you two things, two things you're going to need to know about me. The first thing is my car is my personal dumping ground. <laughs> I really, really wish this wasn't me. It's almost embarrassing to admit, but it just kind, it's, it's just who I am. So there is nothing that big old minivan cannot fill. Uh, you want water bottles? Katie, your husband would die over the amount of water bottles he would be washing those days. Uh, you want sucker wrappers, goldfish crumbs. I mean, you name it. If you need something, the, the minivan will help you out. Um, and the second thing is I leave my keys in my car 
a lot, like a lot, like too much. And the problem is that I usually leave the doors unlocked or for a lot of us, you know, the key that won't lock if your keys are in there. So we've got a dirty car that's always wide open with the keys right in it. So one morning as I was starting the circus that is leaving for school, we're gathering all our things, the kids are putting on their backpacks, like dragging them out the door. And I look out into our driveway and I realize the van isn't there. And so I started like thinking, where did I park last night? I know it wasn't in the garage. I know it wasn't on the street. Like, I'm pretty sure that's, that's where I left the van. I'm pretty sure. So I leaned back in and I was like, hey, Blake, did you move the van for any reason? I started thinking of like where the van could be. Surely someone's playing a joke on me, right? Well, wrong. The nice police officer let me know that this is called a crime of opportunity. So when someone is going to rummage through your car at night. Usually they're just looking for like money laying out or your cell phone chargers, but not when your keys are there and your purse is there and they can just start it and take off. And so bye to the minivan, bye to the really expensive double stroller, the three car seats and all the goldfish that they can want. Well, that's the backstory to where fear comes in. You see, I was at work and I got a phone call from my mom. She picks up my kids from school for me and she has that frantic sound in her voice, the, the voice that, that moms and grandmas can do so well, where I knew she was worried. And then, then it started to worry me. And she let me know that Riker was not there. Riker was not there. And so I picked up, at that moment, all I could think about was if Riker's not there, someone has my stolen van with the pickup ticket and someone has my license, which all you need to pick up a kid is a stolen van and a license. And my fear started spiraling down, 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 and it was suffocating me. And a coworker caught on to my uneasiness and gently asked me, what do you know is true? Fear is not from God. And when you can guard your mind, you can guard your peace. Paul reminds us in Philippians 4 that God gives us peace in fear. That peace comes from focusing on what he says is true. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. So in this particular situation, my fear was diminished because Riker was in the pickup line. Our last name is Sabastin, often confused with Sebastian, and they were just calling the wrong kid. But what happens when your fears are realized? When the diagnosis is gut-wrenching? When death is imminent? When your child is struggling beyond what you can help? Can we still have peace in those fears? Can we still have rest of will even then? The peace of Christ is the only way that we can overcome our hardest moments. It's the connection to the vine, the abiding in Jesus. It's knowing that we can listen to his voice in our darkest of days and the promises that we find in his word. If he is for us, then who can be against us? Whom shall I fear? For you are with me. I am with you. I will help you. I will strengthen you. I have called you by name. You are mine. He trades our troubled hearts for peace. He minimizes our fears and he pours truth into our lives. We just have to be willing to fill our hearts and our minds with his word. All right, moving on. Number C is to commit to tr letter. It's not a number. We're talking about the alphabet here. Commit to trust. 
If you remember from the first week of this study, Deidre set us up and she talked about how we abide and we talked about the vine and the branches. And where we're at in scripture is right in between that. So Jesus is just talking to his disciples. Most likely he says, let us leave. They walk down and he talks with them about the vine. Then we pick up in chapter 16 and Jesus says this, I have told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And I love the message version of this. Um, I've told you, okay. I've told you all this so that in trusting me, you will be unshakable and assured, deeply at peace. The Bible makes it pretty clear that we are not immune to conflict and trials. So we have our second kiddo, he was born and he is just the sweetest thing. He was so cute, but man, if you tried to put that kid down, he wasn't that cute anymore. He lived in my pouch. He had to be in the, one of the carriers. And so you guys know, some of you mamas with multiples, you're chasing the two-year-old with one hand, you're trying to hold the other one, your hands are full. It was also during this time that my husband started to have some health issues and struggling with anxiety and depression. He was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder earlier in his life, but the unannounced panic and anxiety had started to become concerning. Through a series of testing and specialists, it was determined that the medication that he had been previously described was almost fatal in its interaction with each other. That amidst a a genetic blood disorder was that and a genetic blood disorder was discovered. The best way to describe this is how you and I have red blood cells that reproduce regularly. He does not, which makes his immune system compromised and easy to get sick. We are so grateful for the medical professionals who helped regulate this as best as possible. But the reality is that anxiety and depression will always be part of our story. It's a daily fight and a trial that he would gladly not have to experience. This was a really trying season. The physical exhaustion of two kids under two mixed with navigating new routines as a couple and a couple of really hard deaths for both of our moms. It was leaving us feeling the trouble of the world. And if I'm really honest, it can still be hard to know how to navigate through this. We both talked about how much easier it would be if God would just take this away, but how ultimately it has increased our dependence on him. While it's not anything we would choose, we choose to trust that God is going to carry us through this battle, that we can surrender our lives to Jesus completely. And he says that by trusting him, we can be, be unshakable and assured deeply at peace. The words Jesus offers at the end of that verse, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is a promise that one day the hard stuff is over, that eternity is full of completeness and peace absent of any trials and man, I can't wait. There's a worship song that many of you know, and it says, we've sung it in this room, and it says, when I fight, I fight on my knees with my hands lifted high. Oh God, the battle belongs to you. We are in a battle, we're in a battle. And the only way we can survive the battle is with our hands lifted high and our hearts surrendered to Jesus. We have to, we have to surrender even in the even ifs, even if anxiety is always a battle, even if our kids struggle, even if the relationship is strained, even if you fill in your battle, even if the circumstances are not what you desire, he is still trustworthy. 
Okay, and the last one um, we're gonna put up is the E, and this is examine your heart. And I want you to take a look at all of these as you've written them down, and they're all verbs. These are all action words. And I wrestled with this a little bit because they require us all to do something. And if we're really honest, we actually probably prefer it that way. We're pretty good at checklists. You tell me to do something, I'll get it done for you. You need me to accomplish something off of your list, I'm gladly to help. You hand us a checklist, we mark it off. But the reality is peace has a whole lot less to do with what we are doing. And these will help us shift our focus, but until we spend time in God's presence, we're missing it. We need to learn to spend time asking God for his peace. This sounds a little cliche and I really tried to find a different way, but it's, it's just the way it goes. I know that time is such a commodity. I know that I'm speaking to a room full of mamas who barely have time to give, to working women who are just trying to make it from the meeting to the mealtime. But we have to reframe what our time spent with Jesus looks like. There's no formula. There's no way you have to do it. He just says, come to me. And in the same way he pleads with us to come to him, he also says that we need to abide in him. We just need to be in his presence. So it's when you're walking around the room with your toddler and holding their hands as they're falling over, over and over. It's as you fold each piece of laundry and refold each piece of laundry. It's as you take your dog for a walk as you are reading a book. It's offering what you cannot do on your own. We have to make time with him a priority, honest time where we are asking for him to take away our plans and desires and replace them with what he has. And it's in those times that our trust is built, that we can rely on his character, that we can really abide in him. So I want you to take a minute and evaluate where you are at. If you look through each one of these, I imagine one of them resonates more clearly to you. And what is it that you need to do, even this week alone, as we prepare our hearts into Easter, to examine, to look at your agenda and what you're wanting for your life and maybe trading that for what God has, that you're ignoring the lies of the world and all the things that you have to do, 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 and instead just to be with him and to abide in him. You know, we don't sit at the same table with the disciples and Jesus that night, but I really truly believe that his words that he spoke to them that evening are the same words that he offers us. He offers his peace. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Let's pray together. God, we're so grateful to be in this room. We're thankful that we get to sit around these tables, that these people in our lives are the ones that are important to us, they're closest to us, that we share life with. And God, we know that that's valuable to you. You, you showed us by example in how you lived with yours. And I just pray that as we refocus our lives, as we refocus our thoughts, God, that you would invade our hearts with an overwhelming sense of your peace in who you are and that we would be able to live in that and know that we can come to you with anything knowing that you are still good, that you will always be good, and that you always have what is best for us. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.